Thanks to you, Ali, uh, for the invitation and uh, a great show. Thanks to everybody for, for being here. So uh, I'm going to try and unpack um, in the next 20 minutes why the Zonda Commission has, is, is important uh, uh, and what happened prior to that. But I think the important thing is um, to understand that hindsight is an exact science. And if we look back, we start to see the picture of state capture and what was happening. Um, so I think firstly, it's important to know that there is an anatomy to corruption and it requires three things. It requires dishonest people in positions of power with funds that can be illicit, illicitly gained. And those three elements play out very strongly in any form of corruption. But um, there's a formula for corruption. It's quite a simple one. It, it unfolds when the gains are greater than the penalty multiplied by the likelihood of prosecution. So if you just look at that, there's a hundred million rand opportunity to be gained uh, in a corrupt deal. Well, what are, the, uh, what are the penalties? Variable fines, 18 years imprisonment, loss of jobs, although that doesn't always happen. Um, sometimes in the ANC you get promoted if you're corrupt. You get extra jobs. You just get moved. But it's this issue that's important. This factor of is there impunity, zero, are you going to get uh, prosecuted, or, or not? Uh, and, and if you are, if, if the rule of law flows and it's very, very strong, as it is in many countries, and the prosecution stakes are high, well then, uh, it's this issue around jail time, 18 years. I mean, sometimes you might take a chance and want to have that uh, money stashed somewhere else and go and sit for a few years in prison. Um, but not so if the stakes are higher in that space. If it's 18 years, if you get heavy fines as well, um, you're going to think twice. But this is what Jacob Zuma did. He created this environment of impunity. And he literally moved the chances of being uh, apprehended, being prosecuted, to zero. Certainly for his cronies uh, in the state. And they just lost the plot. They became blind by the amount that they could take. And the beauty, though, of digital fingerprints and emails and the Gupta leaks and everything else is that that never goes away. And it comes back if things change enough, as they have started to do, although not fast enough, uh, and, and then the, the, whole, the table swings, uh, the pendulum swings, and, and those who are found wanting can be held accountable. So when you get that down to zero, or the chances of, of being prosecuted uh, very low, anything really goes. And we see it in local government, we see it in provincial government, it has just permeated uh, the entire levels of, of, of government. And this is where we have to work hard now, to get that back, that zero factor in prosecution back to one, or as high as possible. When people know that the chances are of me being held accountable, uh, are going to be high, high enough. And we're frustrated at the slow pace of prosecutions in this country, but things are starting to turn. So let's have a look at what happened. Um, from 2007, when Zuma wins overwhelmingly in Polokwane, and he tells uh, Mbeki, I'm now number one, I'm going to be your boss. Uh, and, and, and it was literally from there onwards 
that uh, state capture started to flow. In June 2008, um, the, the negotiations and, and, and the dealings with the Guptas is well underway when Zuma's daughter, Duduzile, is appointed as a director at Sahara Computers. And by September 2008, uh, um, Thabo Mbeki is, uh, is, is persuaded to resign, and Khalema Matlante is put in charge to hold the fort, while Jacob Zuma, in the background, is doing a lot of work. By May 2009, uh, Jacob goes on to become president uh, of, with the ANC's majority win, and um, the work that he's doing to start to uh, undo uh, or to put in place the structures um, that would assist him in state capture uh, are being put in place. Uh, by February 2010, uh, we have the Sona speech. And in that speech, he announces 864 billion rand of infrastructure spend that was going to start taking place. Uh, and that's where state capture is funded. It's through infrastructure spending and through the uh, SOEs, and I'll show you how that is done, uh, that cleverly aligns funds to uh, the two factors that come into play, people on the inside and people on the outside, businesses and so forth. Um, by October that same year, he replaces seven people on his cabinet. He puts Malusi Gagaba in charge of DPE, public enterprises, that is looking after these state-owned entities. And, um, and so the web of the Guptas' uh, infiltration into getting Zuma to make appointments that suit this plan start to take place. And we see uh, in, uh, in, uh, in um, 2010, on December the 7th, the New Age literally publishing the names of the board, the new board of Transnet, and predicting that um, Brian Malefe would become the CEO. And sure enough, the next day, uh, we see um, the announcements of that entire board uh, from, from the New Age, uh, from Gigaba's speech. And uh, a couple of months later, in February 2011, uh, we see Malefe appointed as the CEO of Transnet, just as the, as the New Age had predicted. And that starts to indicate how strong and how clear the game was being played. And those were the playing fields. The top three, Eskom, Transnet, Denel, is where, is where the Guptas really got involved in, but they didn't get involved in all aspects of state capture. Uh, we have uh, Prasa, SAA, uh, and Sanral, where there's a lot of corruption taking place, and uh, not necessarily under the auspices of the organized state capture that we have come to know, but in Zondo's report, he speaks about a lot of uh, the stuff that was taking place that was not really and necessarily Gupta-related. And I want to share with you some of the um, factors that uh, took place and, uh, in a couple of graphs here. But you must know that as these SOEs were appointed, so you start to see these um, structures uh, become disempowered when it comes to governance. We see SOE boards replaced, new CEOs put in place, and CEOs that are given a lot more power. And one of the factors that started to take place, but you have to look back at it, 
is this revaluation of assets and liabilities. Not so much the liabilities, but you have to revalue your assets in order to make your balance sheets look good so that you can start dishing out these lucrative bonds, good interest rates, and get the finance houses to give you the money. It wasn't the state that was going to give that 846 billion rand or 64 billion rand. It was going to come from lending houses, world banks, and it was coming with good interest rates as well. And so you can see, look at Transnet over that time. Very quickly, if you have a look at the assets being revalued, so you can start pushing up your debt and your interest-bearing debt and your borrowings. Um, and these are state-owned entities, remember, they're not JSE-listed companies, but the same rules apply. If you're going to invest, you need to be able to convince me as the investor to buy your bonds that those are going to be covered uh, by the assets. And so all they did, and as IFRS allows the international finance reporting systems and the international accounting systems and stru structures allow you to revalue your assets, they are, if, if those assets are realizable at those values. And that's not what happened here. And so you'll see the borrowing start taking place. Interest-bearing debt at, at uh, Transnet goes up threefold in almost four years. If you just take a look at Danel, started a bit later, 2011, the same thing happens. They start revaluing their assets. Now, in Transnet's case and Danel's case, there was no additional infrastructure. And how do they unpack or equate the increase in the value of Transnet's rail network when traffic is moving or freight is moving from rail to road? The assets were not appreciating to that extent. Same thing in Danel. And I guess this one that makes it uh, the worst is, is, is Eskom. If you just look in those first few years, uh, asset values in their property and plant elements, uh, which is the bulk of their uh, assets, their total assets, jumps 75 percent from 2007 to 2009. And there were no new power plants put in place. Madupi was coming on board then. But how do you increase the value of these old power plants to that extent? And then again, from 2009 to 2010, another 29 percent. So nearly 100% in three years, your assets, your old power plants, get revalued. And this is exactly why they did that, so that this interest-bearing debt could start raising. So they could go out and give these government-guaranteed bonds and start uh, uh, bringing the debt uh, on board and use that to plunder away. And you see Madupi taking three, four times longer than it should have been built three times the cost, Kosili coming on board soon after that. And these were only just started then. And those assets were not allowed to be realized at this stage because they weren't even half built, quarter built by then. And so interest-bearing debt goes up from 50 billion to 100 billion rand in two years. And then you can see where this is going. The, interest, the, the, the assets, those old power plants, are suddenly valued right up to almost 600 billion rand. But if you ask any investor, would you buy one of those power stations? You wouldn't. 
They certainly don't contain that value. And this is what happened with the interest-bearing debt. It went up from uh, by 300, up to 360 billion rand in that short period of time from 2010 to 2017. And that's why Eskom is in the mess it's in today. Same thing at, at uh, Sanral. Look at the road network, pretty static. And those assets grow massively. And one of the economists, transport economists, asked Nazir Ali, so now you're in trouble. What do you do as a state-owned entity? In a normal business, you would have to sell your assets if you're in trouble. Sell the ones you can to keep the, uh, the uh, debt at bay, to keep people who want their money back at bay. But you can't sell South Africa's roads. And so this has been a false situation. And, and what we do understand now is that if you talk to the lending houses, and I was speaking to them a while ago, who had given a lot of money to these state and entities over this time, and asked them if this was a uh, JSE-listed company, would you have lent them the money, knowing what was happening here? And they had to know because they should have gone back and seen and asked the question, why are you valuing your assets so high? Of course, that road network is massive. Of course, it might be valued at that if you had to rebuild it. But you cannot sell it. You cannot dispose of your assets, the country's assets. And so the, uh, the regular involvement of the Guptas in state spending uh, was there. I mean, it was there in the Free State with Estina, Nulani Investments, the Premier's laptops that he bought, Transnet, the locomotives, um, regiments, consulting, McKinsey, the CDB loans uh, uh, with Transnet, they were all involved in those, the interest swaps with regiments and Nedbank, Eskom, the sale of Optimum Coal Mine and the prepayment of coal for Tegeta, prepayment of coal, never happened with any other company, Danel, the uh, Null Asia, the VR laser scandals, uh, the New Age, getting all that business, the business breakfasts and government advertising spending. Uh, their hands were so deep uh, in this space. But it wasn't only confined to the Guptas, as I said. The aviation sector, SAA, Dudumnieni, Yaki Quinani, the, the gates were opened. Everybody was now participating. SAA Technical, AXA. Um, and then in the correctional services space at Busasa, uh, it was just, Busasa was around long before the Guptas came along. So much plundering taking place. And then, of course, in the release yesterday of the uh, fourth uh, volume, um, we see Gwede Mantash's name. And the Zonda is saying, there's investigations that need to happen here. Gwede Mantashi is a potentially uh, corrupt person as far as Zondo is concerned. And he is saying to the, uh, to, to, to the, um, the authorities out there and the, and the uh, uh, NPA, go and do your work as prosecutors. And then it's, it's not only there, it's uh, with businesses in the city of Joburg at the time and within the ANC, Prasa, the tall trains, Swifamba, uh, SARS and Bain, uh, the list goes on. And uh, not to mention what's been happening in provincial and local government. Uh, the plundering is, is just, has just been massive uh, from a state capture point of view. And the media exposure and talking to what Alec is saying, week after week, headlines today, gone tomorrow, um, they continue because 
what the politicians will do in this space uh, as they in infiltrate and, and, and influence what's happening in the administration is that this is sensationalism. This is uh, a speculation. These are political agendas that are being played. Um, this is interference in using the media to interfere. And, and so parliaments were, and MP, uh, MPs within parliaments were convinced and to look away, to ignore this uh, that's happening. And so Zuma uh, survives many, many uh, attempts uh, to, to have him voted out uh, in the no-confidence votes in parliament. This party patronage, this catered deployment, is so strong and it allows this uh, plundering to continue even though the headlines are there week after week, day after day, lots of dots. And the joining is very difficult without a commission because the picture cannot be painted when it is all put down to speculation and political agendas. So they don't budge. And, um, and, and this, this issue of, of parliament being asleep at the wheel permitting the plundering to take place is a reality. So then along comes the, the State Capture Commission, and I say nearly missed. We did, did nearly miss this because it was um, due to the uh, report that was put forward by uh, Tuli Madansela, and thankfully Brian Mslanga and, and, and Stanislas Muyebe and the DA's uh, um, Musi Maimani at the time lodged complaints with Tuli Madansela. She, uh, she was going out by December 2016, and she gets her report in just in time, in October 2016. And that sets the, the, the ground for the State uh, the, the Commission, because she recommends that a commission should take place. Obviously, over the next year, Jacob Zuma tries to fight that. He tries to have it set aside in court, and that Stalingrad uh, process takes another year, but by, uh, um, by, by December 2017, uh, it is set aside or thrown out of court. The courts rule against him. Uh, and that same month, the ANC elections happen, and Cyril Ramaphosa comes to, into power. Um, and then what happens is he's under pressure, Jacob Zuma. The court has set aside his attempt to try and have the the uh, report by Tuli Madansela thrown out. And um, what happens is uh, he then establishes the judicial, judicial commission, but with rules. He knows his time's running out, and he tries to, to hammer it in and to ensure that this, everything that comes out of the state commission is not going to be used. And so we see uh, uh, President um, Ramaphosa coming into play, forcing Jacob Zuma out, changing the terms of reference of the... Uh, of the commission, allowing the evidence therein to play out in courts of law, uh, in court cases going forward, and he broadens the terms well beyond just uh, the state capture in those certain areas, but down to all spheres of government. And uh, three and a half years um, of, of Zondo starts. It starts in, in, in on the 20th of August, the first uh, oral uh, statements given in, in August uh, 2018. And here we are three and a half years later with the reports uh, being published in various volumes. But the stories that have come out in the Zonda Commission, the interviewing that has taken place, um, and the cross-questioning that has been taking place is critical because a state, a, 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 um, a, 
when you have a situation of, of a, a commission of inquiry, it's a judicial process. And it has powers. And it makes findings. And it makes very strong findings and then very strong recommendations. And that is no more speculation. A judge has ruled, he's made findings that have to be used, that cannot be ignored. And this is important for this country going forward. So what does he do? Well, he finds that, um, without a doubt, corruption, fraud, theft, and maladministration does take place. It's no longer speculation. It's no longer just headlines in the media and other people's agendas. And he also makes it very clear that people were not credible. They were untruthful. And that's stuff that the NPA cannot ignore. And then he gives recommendations. And those recommendations are powerful, and there's still more coming out in the, in the final volumes. Um, but he says that uh, further investigations by law enforcement and the NPA must take place. So they can't ignore this, as they seem to have been doing over the last few years. He also recommends that there's amendments to legislation. Penalties need to start uh, uh, increasing. The NPA and, and, and PRECA and, and, and laws that govern the way we manage corruption need to, uh, need to be changed. He goes down hard on the NPA and says that uh, accountability against perpetrators must start to take place. Um, he suggests that the changes in the uh, processes of select selecting boards must change, and there's where we start to see civil society coming into play. And he asks for more insights from those entities such as SICA, URBA, these are organizations that are slightly outside of government but have powers and they need to start playing their role. And we've been calling for that for some time at ARTA. Um, and that whistleblowers need more protection. Now these are all excellent recommendations in the fight against corruption. And if they start coming to fruition, then we're excited about what can happen going forward. So these recommendations are excellent. And just in closing, you know, we, the question we're often asked is, well, was that one billion rand on the Zander Commission worth it? Uh, and certainly, was it the three and a half years worth it? And of course it is. It's not a waste of money. In the greater scheme of things, a billion rand is nothing of what's been plundered. But if we didn't start this, then we'd be sitting here today with nothing, just speculation. But we have a document now, and Shamila Batoy and her crew have to start working. And that is why Homi Nkrenia has moved on. She has not been producing in the in investigative directorate, and we have to get the NPA to do its job. But remember, the NPA is under pressure. The NPA is still dealing with rape, with murder, with theft, with so much going on in this country. And we have to put the specific consensus, the specific focus areas in what Zondo is recommending, special courts as well, big focus, more money, more funding, to get those who profited from the uh, crimes of corruption and uh, maladministration in state capture into the space where they need to be, in the dock, in the courts, and eventually in jail.